Uh, hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical realities of today. Now, what do I got for you today? Today, we're going to talk about uh, an update on the situation in Sudan. We're going to talk about how the U.S. is dragging South Korea into the Ukraine war, and then we'll get into the latest round of news covering Taiwan and why it is still a bad idea for the United States to fight that war. All that and more coming up. let's get into the rapid fire news so we have the u.s evacuating embassy staff from sudan other countries are following suit as the death toll of the conflict as of now reaches 420 people dead with 3,700 injured and this is according to the u.n uh, but back to that first point about the u.s evacuating embassy staff and we were apparently the first ones to do so and which may or may not give credence to uh talk and speculation that the U.S. may or may not have instigated the current round of fighting in Sudan, but we'll get to that when we have a little bit more evidence for it, although it has, that accusation has been thrown around there, considering that the Russians have established a naval base in Sudan, and we're currently in an undeclared state of war with Russia, so, but if more evidence of that comes out, I'll, we'll talk more about it, but for now, I'll just leave that there. But, yeah, we're, we were really quick to evacuate our embassy from Sudan, which leaves me asking, where was this energy during the Afghanistan withdrawal? Where was it at? I mean, we gave ourselves four extra months, because remember, we were supposed to be gone by May of 2021? We were supposed to be gone by May. There, there wasn't supposed to be anybody there in May. Not, well, we're leaving in May. No, we're going to be gone by May. So the Biden administration gives themselves all of May, all of June, all of July, and then almost all of August, four extra months, and they evacuate no one until the last second. And then you get the infamous (laughs) pictures of people being airlifted by helicopter off the embassy, off the roof of the embassy, and you get the even more infamous pictures of people (laughs) falling off the sides of the plane as it was taking off, because they had the bright idea of conducting this uh, withdrawal from Kabul International Airport instead of Bagram. So where was was this energy at back then, when we had all that time? Like, because this is extremely short notice. No, this fighting literally broke out last week, and our embassies, uh, they're gone. Everyone else is scrambling. Which, again, may or may not hint that we knew it was going to happen earlier. But where was this energy at for Afghanistan? I believe, I maintain my firm belief, that our withdrawal from Afghanistan was botched on purpose. And we can see now that we are fully capable of conducting proper evacuations of our embassies and our staff and of our people and of our citizens from hostile environments when we want to be but i guess we just didn't want it back then or at the very least the people in charge didn't want it 
And so we end up with that night, that horror show that was the withdrawal from Afghanistan. We don't, we don't, I, I don't, I haven't heard of any American soldiers being killed in the Sudan withdrawal. I'll just say that much. But yeah, so we have that. We have sustained Russian airstrikes continuing in Ukraine for the third straight week. Uh, the Russian Air Force, we can now assert definitively, because I, I felt as much last week, and I speculated as much the week before that, because we got reports that Ukraine's air defense missiles were running low. They were running low on air defense missiles. And I said, well, the primary reason that the Russians haven't been using their air force is because of how much air defense the Ukrainians had. But because the Ukrainians have expended their air defense missiles trying to defend themselves from the Russian uh, guided missiles, that strategic missile bombing campaign, which began back in October, we I speculated upon hearing the news that Ukraine was getting low on air defense missiles, that the Russian Air Force was going to start to become more active. The air war was going to open up. Then we saw a little bit of that last week. Now we're seeing a continuation of that same trend this week. So the air, the Russian Air Force is now operational. It's online. And it's going to stay that way now. And they, from what I hear, they are hunt, actively hunting down the remainder of Ukraine's air defense, meaning that this is just the beginning. That we're going to see more and more and more Russian air power come into play this war. And if that... <laughs> If that doesn't tell you just how much you, Russia was holding back this entire time, I don't know what else does. I don't know what else can. Like, they've been fighting this war with a handful of men. 200,000 men was all it took to best all of NATO and to bring NATO to its knees. 200,000 men. And now we're looking at the Russian Air Force coming back into the picture. They were there a little bit in the beginning when they first conducted their special military operation but now the russian air force has come in force and it's going to continue to come in force which in my view hints at an eventual ground offensive the backbreaker offensive is what i call it and the ukrainians are still they're still committed to this this offensive that they eventually want to do how exactly they're going to conduct it i don't know i think that they're going to have to wait on those half a million shells that they're getting from America and America's getting from South Korea to compensate for or to sell to the Ukrainians. And we'll, we'll get a little bit more into that specifically later on in this episode. But with that uh, Pentagon leak that we covered and we're, we have reason to believe it's true based on a number of other reports that we've really been hearing over the course of the entire war. It, it confirms the trend, even if it's a little bit more pronounced than what we were going with. But if that number is true, there's no way they can conduct this offensive without the additional shells from America, from Europe. So they have to wait. But the Russians are also continually amassing their forces and they're even starting their air bombardment with their air force, which means that an eventual ground defensive is going to come. So it seems to me, and this is the opinion of other people as well, namely the Duran, that Russia is going to wait and ride out this Ukrainian offensive. And apparently there's like a lull on the battlefields as well, obviously with the exception of Bakhmut, but across the front line, there's a bit of a lull. The Ukrainians are trying to conserve ammunition for this offensive. 
and conserve manpower, more importantly than anything else, for this offensive. And the Russians are have every reason to do the same, especially if you f- come to the conclusion that the Duran has, and that I believe myself, that the Russians are getting ready for their own offensive immediately after the Ukrainians waste away everything they have left. The, the backhand blow, the backbreaker offensive, will begin sh- almost immediately after the Ukrainian counteroffensive. In fact, it is, it's probably going to begin during the Ukrainian counteroffensive as the Ukrainian lines crumble from the weight of the Russian defenses. And then the Russians just push back with the air power covering them now. The, the missiles are going to come in. The hyperson- We're starting to see more and more hypersonic missiles. We only saw a handful of those. We're probably going to start to see more thermobaric missiles as well. We only saw a handful of those. This is the tidal wave that Scott Ritter has been talking about. This is it. Uh, we saw the high, uh, we saw the low tide. We saw the the seashells, and everyone thought, "Oh, Ukraine's winning the war. Oh, they're they're gonna win. We can we can push to Crimea. We can push Russia all the way back." As a matter of fact, we're, this is our chance. We're gonna we're gonna dismantle Russia. We're gonna decolonize Russia, and you have all these these people uh, speculating even now on the post war order. And what exactly they're going to do with a, a defeated Russia and how, how they're going to break up Russia, how they're going to partition Russia. Yeah, that was the low tide, which comes right before the tidal wave. Now the water is coming in. And Ukraine is out <laughs> on the beach collecting seashells. They're going to get run over by the water. They're going to drown a lot of people who supported Ukraine are going to drown in the information that they really don't want to hear. This summer, as I have speculated, will be the rudest of awakenings for a lot of people. A lot of people. And we'll I'll just be here to document exactly how that goes, but we're starting to see what's on the horizon now. We're starting to see it this offensive that we've been waiting on both on the Ukrainian and the Russian side, we're starting to see it. This is the final battle. Bakhmut was the, the deciding battle of this war. And what comes after Bakhmut will be the final battle of this war. Not final as in the last engagement, but like the final real battle, the real big battle of this war. The last Ukrainian counteroffensive, followed by the Russian offensive, the backbreaker offensive. So, things in Ukraine are calm, as calm as they're going to be, but it's a calm before the storm. I am very interested in seeing how exactly things go down. Not necessarily on the battlefield, although the battlefield will be interesting to report on, but behind the battle lines, you know. How the Europeans and the Americans respond to being utterly decimated in Ukraine. That will be interesting to watch. And perhaps the most important thing to watch as well, when you have talk of an intervention in Ukraine, these EU peacekeepers, and this idea of Poland taking parts of uh, Western Ukraine, Poland and Hungary, for that matter, there's talk of them doing that, with a little bit of talk of Romania getting in on the take as well, We'll see what happens. 
And because that response is going to be perhaps the most important thing in this war, because if they send in peacekeepers that get blown apart by Russian artillery, that's a war between Russia and NATO. So we'll keep our eyes on that. But we have the Chinese defense minister visiting Russia. And so here we can see the strategic partnership between Russia and China developing more of its militaristic dynamic as well. It's primarily an economic thing, uh, an economic and political thing, where the Chinese cover Russia's flank diplomatically, and they're going to expect the Russians to do the same for them when the Taiwan war happens. So there is a little bit of a time constraint on the Ukraine war, even though Russia has all the time in the world, and the longer the, the war drags on, the more NATO equipment that they can destroy without actually having to fight NATO. The more they can weaken Ukraine, even though that's not necessarily something that they wanted to do, and they didn't want this war to begin with. But if, they, if they're going to have the war, they may as well weaken their enemy to the point where they can't threaten Russia ever again. Yeah. So... The longer the war goes on, the better of a position the Russians are going to be in, quite frankly. The, the, the deaths, the casualties are just so lopsidedly in their favor. And Ukraine's out of ammo now. Uh, from an from a operational point of view, until those half a million shells arrive, until the Europeans can muster up the first set of those quarter million shells every month that the Ukrainians are asking for, until that manifests itself, Ukraine's out of ammo. Which means they're perhaps at their most vulnerable point in this entire war. The, the only time they're going to be more vulnerable than this is when their offensive begins. And they expend the last of their forces. And the Russians hit back. That will be the, perhaps the most weak, the most vulnerable the Ukrainian army will have been. But for now, we have the current lowest point for the Ukrainian army. They're out of ammo. They're, they're out of artillery. They're out of air defense. They're running out of men. And they they can't even start their offensive. So, yeah. Russia has all the time in the world. But China's going to expect Russia to be there at peace to cover China's flank diplomatically, economically, and politically as well, just as the Chinese have done for Russia by staying out of the war. And allowing for all the trade opportunities that Russia's been denied as a way of the war to just essentially be rerouted through China and then back into Russia. So China's going to expect the same treatment from the Russians when the Taiwan war begins, which means that Russia is on a little bit of a time constraint to wrap things up. But we can see that the militaristic side of this partnership is developing with this visit from the Chinese defense minister. We have the ex-CIA agent Michael Morell admitting that the Biden campaign paid him to organize and fabricate the letter, which was signed by 50 other CIA and former CIA agents, well, we'll just say intel agents, which said that the Hunter Biden laptop story was Russian disinformation. And now we're finding out that the disinformation was the idea that it was Russian disinformation, which is essentially an admission although they don't want to say this, this is an admission of deliberate election interference on the part of the CIA from a former CIA agent. And it wasn't just them, it was the FBI, the DOJ. It was a lot of people. So again, we have another shot being fired across the bow and it's 
the the sign is there the elections are being called into question just like with the january 6th story with the footage being released we still don't have all the fourteen thousand hours footage or so but with the footage we saw which was aired on tucker carlson we saw a very different side of the story. And this is something that people who were paying attention saw themselves, but the masses who were fed endless propaganda were seeing for the first time. So if the January 6th protesters were not there to overthrow the government, then why were they there? And why were there so many of them? Oh, they were there because they thought the election was stolen? Well, well, if they are not insane, crazy people, and if they have a legitimate reason for being at the Capitol on this time, and they were not there to overthrow the government, but were there to voice a grievance to their government, well, now, if they're not crazy people, we have to treat them like people who are not crazy people, which means we have to look at their concerns. We have to, you know, we have to look at why they were there, and if they were there because of the elections, well, what was wrong with the elections? State your case. So there's that. You have, uh, you have more and more issues pertaining to our elections. I mean, there's still a battle over who exactly is the governor of Arizona. Katie Hobbs is there, but there's still legal battles going on over the ballots. And more and more, you're starting to see these battles come into the mainstream. See, they were repressed before, but now... These election battles are coming into the mainstream. These election disputes are becoming a normal thing, which eventually is going to make its way into the public mind that there's something wrong with the elections. And if there's something wrong with the elections, that throws into question the entire legitimacy of everybody currently in office and proves Trump right when he says fraud. It proves him right when he says that there was interference. And now that we have a CIA agent well, ex-CIA, admitting to this deliberate interference from his own agency that 50 of the other agents working in it, well, agents and former agents, were complicit in an active, co- inactive collaboration with this effort as well. Not just like a passive thing, though. They were active because he went to them and asked them, well, if the elections are now questionable... That means Donald Trump is not a conspiracy theorist. That means none of the people questioning the elections are conspiracy theorists. It means that they are, they have legitimate grievances. And if they have legitimate grievances when they question the elections, that means we need election reform. But election reform doesn't allow you to cheat in the elections. No, 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 no. So more and more we have the makings of the fall of this administration by way of a deliberate attack on their own legitimacy, an attack that they earned, quite frankly, by cheating in the election. But that is a very interesting development that I'm not seeing talked about too much. People are really focusing on the corruption of the CIA, which is something we know. I mean, they assassinated the president and then his brother, and then they assassinated Martin Luther King Jr. So it's it's not the corruption of the CIA is new, but that's what most people are focusing on I wanted to focus a little bit on the election side of that. Uh, So that's interesting. And then lastly, we have India 
on track to overtake China as the world's most populous nation. Now, the current estimate puts this, uh, the current estimate suggests that this is going to happen sometime by the end of this month. And we only have like six days left in the month. Uh, seven, if you count today, but by the time you're hearing this, it'll be six. Uh, but if not this month, it's certainly going to happen sometime next month. Uh, China and India don't have a habit of importing people. So this is all domestic. And because they don't have a habit of importing people, it's not like the Chinese are going to import half a million new refugees. Well, half a million wouldn't help them. <laughs> it's not like they're going to import 10 million refugees and suddenly find themselves in the lead again. So this is a pretty major development, although it's going to take a while for it to have much meaning aside from India having a slightly greater population than China. But China's population, courtesy of their demographics, is on its way down. Now, we'll see how they rebound, and I believe that they will rebound. I believe every country is going to rebound from this. Now, which countries are going to fracture and fragment in the process of this demographic rebounding, this correction that's going to happen, uh, we'll just have to wait and see. And the reason I say that instead of uh, adhering strictly to the Peter Zion uh, thesis, which is that it's just forever, it's because forever is a very long time. And just looking at uh, American demographics, you see that there is a split between liberals and conservatives where the conservatives are at or above replacement rate. Uh, the average brings us down to just about replacement rate, but there's plenty of people who have more than two kids, whereas liberals uh, have one and maybe two kids like it's really low and when you have one and a half as the average for half the population and then two or more for the average of the conservatives the other half of the population well you get an, a national average of 1.7 but as time goes on more and more uh, well a larger and larger percentage of the population is represented by the people who have kids and a smaller and smaller percentage of the population is represented by the people who don't have kids. It's a self-correcting thing. It just takes a long time to play out, especially when you're talking about birth rates that are so low. Well, I mean, two to three kids, well, we should be having four to five. Back in the day, we'd be having seven. <laughs> but yeah, because the birth rates are so low, that, that dynamic takes longer to play out. But it's going to play out, and it's going to play itself out everywhere around the world with people who have more kids representing larger and larger proportions of the population, especially in a time when people are going back to tradition, going back to their, their culture, their heritage. And this is something that is argued extensively by Dr. Steve Turley. So in the end, China will probably come back to a billion people at some point later on in the future. Now, whether that's by the end of this century or sometime early next century, we'll just have to see. But they have gotten rid of the one-child policy, and, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm just waiting for them to start enforcing the five-child policy in the same way that they enforce the one-child policy, where they, they break in and beat you <laughs> for not having kids instead of for having kids. That'll get the birth rates up real quickly. Uh, but uh, that'll be a desperate measure. So we'll see what becomes of this. But yeah, so this is pretty major development, although the impacts of it will take a while to be felt. Uh, and it'll take the decline of pop China's population for it to be felt anyway. But I guess in before we start to paint India as the real enemy instead of China. Oh, yeah. 
I can't wait to see that one. But that's the A Rapid Fire News, and we'll get into the meat of this episode in just a moment. Alrighty, let's get into the meat of today's episode, and we'll start with an update on the Sudan situation. So last week, fighting between the Rapid Support Forces, the RSF, which is the militias led by Mohammed Ham- Mohammed Hamadan Dagalo, or Hemeti, as they call him, fighting between the Rapid Support Forces and the Sudanese army led by Abdul Fattah al-Burhan, that broke out and was primarily fighting in the capital city of Khartoum and its surrounding cities slash suburbs. The militias have claimed control over most of the southwestern regions of the country as well, and it looks like we have a fully blown civil war on our hands. Now, there are attempts to calm it down, and we'll see how successful those attempts are. But in the midst of this, we have uh, the military telling people to stay indoors, uh, the militias trying to assert control over more of the country, uh, uh, the civilians, the citizens have been told to stay indoors because the military was conducting aerial reconnaissance. And that aerial reconnaissance has evolved into air strikes. So they've gone from looking to shooting uh, people moving on the streets that they suspect to be a part of the rapid support forces. So the military does have the advantage of air superiority because from what I can tell, the, the militias don't have that. So that is a definitive advantage in favor of the military. And we'll see how well that they use this advantage. Now, the RSF cooperates that there are airstrikes being conducted, and they claim that these airstrikes have killed and injured dozens of their troops. And as we talked about a few moments ago, some countries are now working to evacuate their embassy staff and other citizens from Sudan amidst the fighting. And the the fighting is intense, primarily around the capital. I want to stress that most of the fighting is being done around Khartoum, in and around Khartoum, uh, other where other parts of the country it's sort of uh, not very intense but it's clear that there is a conflict that has broken out across the entirety of the country so in the capital where the embassy is you have the uk evacuating its embassy canada and germany are evacuating their embassies uh, we already talked about the united states uh, being the first to evacuate its embassy incredible how we can do that for sudan but not afghanistan uh, but you have that. You have the French who have been evacuating not just their own people and their own diplomats, but they've been evacuating EU officials from Sudan as well and relocating all of them to Djibouti, where they have a, a military base. Now, one convoy from the French successfully made it out, carrying around 100 people. Another one of France's convoys carrying a similar number of people was attacked with both sides of the war, accusing the other of having perpetrated this attack. So for the time being, we are it's unclear who was behind it. All of which uh, is making this messy. It's it's getting messy. Um, not I don't mean to paint this as though it was the the end of the world, but it's it's a messy situation. That's just the the best way to put it. And all those attempts at evacuating people were aimed at getting people out via airlift, so the evacuations were conducted towards air bases, which are going to be used to get people out. Qatar and Jordan, on the other hand, 
have attempted their evacuations by land to try to not get to an airport, but to get to the Port Sudan, uh, the, well, a port on Sudan's east coast in the Red Sea. Uh, the Qatari convoy, the Qatari convoy was attacked. It has been attacked. The Jordanese convoy, from what I can tell, has made it out. Uh, but the Qatari convoy got raided. And these accusations for this raid do point more towards the militias than the military. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Um, meanwhile, Egypt, India, Nigeria, and Libya are all still working on their evacuations. Not too much information on that yet. Uh, hopefully everyone gets out safely. But Egypt has said that one of its diplomats has been injured in the fighting. And this is in addition to the nine Egyptian soldiers who are who were already stranded in Sudan to begin with. So more and more we see the endangerment, particularly of Egyptian personnel and civilians, which runs the risk for Sudan of an Egyptian military intervention. Now, again, that's a, that's a really long walk <laughs> from the Egyptian border to the Sudanese capital, Khartoum. But it's a greater danger for the Sudanese than any other intervention aside from maybe the United States. So <laughs> there's that. And that's sort of always going to be looming in the background because the Egyptians might. I don't want to suggest that they're just going to go for it, although having the Egyptian empire might be nice, but you know, they might. And it's a possibility. It's a possibility that Ethiopia gets involved as well, although I don't see Ethiopia getting involved when they just finished fighting their own civil war. But, but, can't leave it out. Can't leave it out, especially the, the possibility of a U.S. intervention. You can't leave that out either. And that's assuming that the U.S. didn't cause the war to begin with, which is something still being speculated on. So we have all this, and alongside this chaos have been legitimate attempts by both sides to safely evacuate the foreign nationals. So uh, even though we've I've just covered all these instances of people trying to evacuate and these instances of convoys with people being evacuated, being attacked by either military or militia forces, there has been noticeable and observable attempts by both the Sudanese army and the rapid support forces to safely get foreign nationals out of the country. Uh, specifically the, the diplomats, you know, the people in the embassies. So I don't want to paint it as exclusively one side as, oh, they're, the, the diplomats are in, in danger, they're going to be killed. Uh, that's part of the story, but the other part of the story is that the two sides are working to get the, those people out safely. So we'll see if people get out safely. It looks like people will be able to get out, although... Although, while the diplomats and the politicians might be able to get out safely, it's the safe evacuation of these foreign nationals have uh, caused another development, which is pretty interesting, which is that it has earned the ire of some of these Sudanese people living in Sudan. Because from their point, point of view, they perceive the preferential treatment of these foreigners as a double standard. Because the, both the government... And the rebels, the militias, are working together to keep the foreigners safe in the fighting, but not their own people. Because whether you're talking about the militias or the army, 
both of them belong to the Sudanese people. So it's like, you're going to prioritize the foreigners over us? Well, so fuck me, right? So that is an interesting development that I've taken note of. And we'll see how that affects the war as well. Perhaps that's a dynamic that can be taken advantage of by either side. To paint the other as being uh, more pro-foreign than pro-Sudanese. To gain more support in the conflict. So there's that. Uh, and this sentiment arises because not just the preferential treatment, but because the Sudanese are being locked in their homes as a security measure, and they they're locked in their homes in the middle of a war zone. They're not allowed to leave. They they can't even get to safety. They have to stay where they are, and risk being bombed at some point instead of taking the risk early on of being shot. But if you're successful, you get out of the war zone. They're they're not even allowed that much. So you can see where the resentment comes in here. But uh, as I mentioned before, attempts have been made to establish a ceasefire. So we shall see if these attempts are indeed successful, and we hope that they are. But that's the situation in Sudan. I wanted to update that since we had more information to work on. So we'll we'll keep our eyes on this. We'll definitely keep our eyes on this. But the other thing, well, one of the other things I wanted to talk about today's episode was the U.S. apparently dragging South Korea into the Ukraine war. Now, last week we talked briefly about South Korea sending, or I guess uh, lending, half a million shells to the U.S., either be either to be sent to Ukraine, uh, you know, from Korea to the United States, then to Ukraine, or to be kept within the United States as a placeholder for uh, so the U.S. can send an equally large number of American-made shells artillery shells to Ukraine. Well, now Russia has responded to that. And the way they've responded has really changed the dynamic here and changed what was possible. Uh, in uh, I guess the best way to say it is that they've changed the game. Russia has responded and they've said that, well, they've threatened an increase in arms shipments to North Korea if South Korean weapons ended up in Ukraine, which is uh, just a friendly reminder that the Korean Peninsula is still a flashpoint and that our alliance with South Korea can, at any moment, get us into a war with the North. Russia said that if South Korean weapons end up in Ukraine, they would consider that a hostile act towards Russia. And, I mean, it would be. I mean, they haven't so far found many South Korean weapons in Ukraine that weren't already there. But if you're going to send weapons to the country we're at war with, well, you're a hostile act. That's a hostile act. You know that we're at war. You're going to send these weapons to the United States, and you know that the United States has been emptying out its own stockpiles of weapons to give to the Ukrainians. You don't think your your equipment's going to go to Ukraine? That's reckless negligence. That is reckless negligence. And therefore, it's a hostile act against you know, against Russia. You know exactly what's going to happen to those shells if you give them to the United States. They're going to go to Ukraine, which means that your weapons are going to be used against Russia. That is a hostile act. And you know it's a hostile because you know that's what's going to happen to these shells if you send them to America. The South Koreans are not dumb, and they are not negligent. Everybody knows what's going to happen to these shells. At some point or another, they're going to be sent to Ukraine. So Russia says if they end up in Ukraine... They will consider this a hostile act. And again, it's not just 
South Korean artillery. It's any South Korean weapons. If they end up in Ukraine, that's a hostile act against Russia. Now, in a sensible world, with that game-changing information, that opens the prospect of your country being drawn into a war that you have literally nothing to do with, in a sensible world, you would, uh, I don't know, cancel the shipment of artillery shells. Because the risk now, which the Russians have made clear for you what the risk is, the risk now is far greater than the reward could ever be. A reward which, mind you, it has been unspecified since the beginning of this and is even more vague for the Koreans, the South Koreans, than it is for the Americans promising the reward. We don't know what we're going to get if we win in Ukraine. No one here knows. Not that we're going to find out because Ukraine's going to lose, but no one here knows what victory looks like. We don't even have a victory condition. Aside from a vague idea of pushing Russia out of Ukraine and standing up to Russia, okay, well, if you're pushing Russia out of Ukraine, does that include Crimea or is that just the Donbass? They don't know. Is Ukraine going to march to Rostov and to Smolensk and to Moscow? Is that what victory looks like? Are we going for a total war or just a, a, a limited war? Quotation marks. No, they, nobody knows. And if we don't know what type of war we're fighting, if we don't know what the victory conditions are, then how do we know we're, what we're going to win? So this... Uh, the any potential benefits of which I view there are, are very, very little, if any, whatever benefits there are, they're incredibly nebulous, they're incredibly vague, and that's for United States, let alone for South Korea, who will gain literally nothing. And again, in a sensible world where the risk of being drawn into a conflict that will do you literally no good, I can't stress the literally part enough, it will do you no good. In a sensible world, you would cancel that shipment of artillery shells because the risk is just far greater than anything you could possibly get back in return. If anything, this new development can be used by the United States to deliberately bring South Korea into a war that, or at a minimum, can be used to ruin South Korea's re relationship with Russia. Because all it would take is an accidental, <laughs> an accidental shipment of South Korean artillery shells to Ukraine. And then, oh, whoops, look at that. South Korean weapons found in Ukraine. I guess, I guess Russia just has to start arming North Korea now. And I guess South Korea, now you, now you see the danger of Russia. Now you see the danger of letting Putin's Russia go unchecked in Ukraine. So you have to be all in on making Ukraine win. You have to be all in on standing with us. And maybe we'll help you with North Korea, even though we got you into this situation. That's what I see happening. Because unless they stop the shipment, we all know that those artillery shells are going to find their way into Ukraine. But especially when you see how low Ukraine is on ammunition and how fast that they might run through the half a million that they're being given in the event that they conduct this counteroffensive. They're not going to be able to fight this war for another year without more shells. And if the Americans and if we're going to send them half a million shells now, 
when they have nothing, what's going to stop us from sending another half a million shells when the Ukrainians run out again? We know what's going to happen to these South Korean artillery shells, which means that unless they cancel the shipment, and I, I don't know if they can or not, or if it's like already halfway across the ocean to the United States, but or, or if it's even already in the United States for that matter and just hasn't made its way to wherever it's going to go, but assume that they can, if South Korea does not cancel this shipment of half a million artillery shells, they are condemning themselves to an inevitable dragging in, so to speak, of their country into this war that they have no business being a part of. And the Americans, oh, I say the Americans as if I'm not them, but the American government is actively incentivized to do this. Like, why wouldn't the United States, seeking to find any possible partner or ally that they can get to throw their lives away for Ukraine, why wouldn't the United States, under its current administration, do that? Why wouldn't they drag South Korea into this? They've dragged everybody else into this. They've tried to drag the entire world into this. To the point where the world is tired of hearing the word Ukraine. We saw what happened at the, the G20 meeting. And how they tried to hijack that with Ukraine, Ukraine, Ukraine. Why wouldn't... What action would indicate that the United States would not take this new piece of information... And use it against the South Koreans to get them into this war. If Russia is going to respond by arms shipments to North Korea, if South Korean weapons end up in Ukraine, well, we should send South Korean weapons into Ukraine. So the South Koreans have a stake in the war. So they, so they have something to lose, you know. There's no reason not to. If you're one of these people who think that we need to win in Ukraine, you, you're, you have a reason to continue. So if you're South Korea, the only logical course of action is to cancel the shipment. You're just endangering your own country at that point. If you continue with it, and again, all it would take is an accidental shipment of South Korean shells to Ukraine. The Ukrainians aren't going to be picky about the artillery shells they receive. So it's nearly a given that those Korean shells will be used in Ukraine. If they end up in Ukraine, they will be used. The Ukrainians need everything they can get their hands on. They're not going to go, oh, oh no, hold on, boys. Those are the South Korean artillery shells. We don't want to be mean to South Korea and drag them into our war. Leave them in, leave them in the warehouses. We're going to use those other artillery shells. No Ukrainian leaders or, or general or commander is going to go, oh, no, we've run out of artillery. We do have those South Korean shells in the stockhouses, but we're not going to use those because it would be inappropriate to drag South Korea into this war. No, no they're not going to do that. They're going to go, oh, well, those are the shells we have, so those are the shells we're going to use. And then, boom, Russians are killed by uh, South Korean artillery. That's how this is going to go. If South Korea falls through on its lending of half a million artillery shells, lending, quotation, quotation, if they follow through on giving those to the United States, it will all but guarantee escalation on the Korean Peninsula. An escalation which, uh, for the South Koreans, would mean conflict with China and North Korea at the same time. And I don't need to tell you the South Koreans' odds for winning such a conflict. I do not need to tell you what the South is going to be capable of in that war other than defeat.
We know how that is going to end. But that's what they're looking at. They can choose the salvation of their country at the ex- perhaps at the expense of the American alliance. Although at this point, I don't see I don't see the U.S. sacrificing alliances, even if it will deliberately undermine the people in those alliances. I don't see the United States walking away from the alliance. And even if we did, this the North. I almost said the North. The South Koreans would be safer. Well, the North Koreans would be safer too for them. I don't know. Even if we did walk away. They'd both be better off, and perhaps they could get to the business of working out the technical functions of a Korean unification. And that's what happened if we if we left. But I don't see the United States giving up the alliance with South Korea yet. So the South, the South, has every reason not to give those shells to America. Don't do it. Don't do it. In a reasonable world, they would never do that. But I don't think we're living in a reasonable world. Eh. So they're going to end up in this conflict with Ukraine. Well, with Russia, they're not going to be in a conflict with Ukraine. They're going to be in conflict with Russia because their weapons are going to be given to the Ukrainians to fight Russia. So then they're going to get drawn into a conflict with North Korea when the Taiwan war kicks off. They're going to end up in a conflict with China and North Korea at the same time. Worst case scenario, they end up at war with China, North Korea, and Russia at the same time. But the Russians, I think, are going to chill off after the war in Ukraine because they have to be at peace in order for them to cover for China's flank diplomatically and economically, and so to speak. They're going to have to be at peace for that. So I don't see them getting involved in that war when it breaks out. It's such an unnecessary conflict. You're going to get into a conflict with China and North Korea at the same time. North Korea armed to the teeth with modern or semi-modern Russian weapons. What good is that going to do you? What good does that do for you? You're not going to win that conflict. Even if the United States wanted to, we we couldn't get troops to South Korea in an environment like that. Not without getting bombed. And for what reason would they incur such a conflict upon themselves? What, for Ukraine? What what does Ukraine winning the war even mean for South Korea? What does that even mean? Uh, The answer, in my not-so-humble opinion, is very little, if anything at all. And while I am aware of the broader geopolitical stakes hinging on the outcome of this war, namely the emergence of a multipolar world order versus the possibility of a continued unipolar world order. I'm aware that that's sort of the the broader stakes in this war, but given the way things have developed in Ukraine so far, even if Russia lost, uh, quotations, even if Russia lost and is forced out of Ukraine, quotations, forced, Uh, But (laughs) even if they lost, the West will still have expended so much time, so much money, energy, prestige, equipment, ammunition, and political capital on the war that we will be incapable of pursuing any kind of dismantling of the Russian state. We're not going to break apart Russia. We won't have the ability to do that. We will have exhausted ourselves. Like we're gonna be in we're gonna be in a depression by the time the 
by the time the war, the war, uh, by the time we even get to that point. So there's no possibility of us even pushing any farther than Ukraine's eastern border. We just wouldn't be able to do it. So that there's that. And additionally, so many Ukrainian lives will have been expended in the fighting as to make Ukraine an impotent force for decades to come. A, a nearly perfect buffer state, if you will. And I say nearly because it will not be a neutral one. If Ukraine wins, they'll be in the EU, they'll be in NATO, but they'll be a dependent in the EU. They'll be a dependent in NATO. They won't be able to contribute much. They'll just, they'll have been hollowed out by the war. So a nearly perfect buffer state, even in the event that Russia loses. So I don't see a victory in Ukraine doing anything for the South Koreans. Because even if Russia loses, even if Russia loses, uh, the damage that has been done to the unipolar world during the war, it can't be undone. It cannot be undone. The applicants to the BRICS aren't going to withdraw their applications. The Saudis are not going to go back to ex to dollar exclusivity for their oil. They're not going to go back to that. And the peace deals being arranged in the Middle East will not stop. And the agreements around the world to do trade in local currencies won't just go away. Even if Russia loses. Nothing good, nothing good is going to come for the people who backed up Ukraine. The multipolar world order still comes into being. Russia just stays Russia, I guess. They, 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 get, a, they get to bite a, a very salty sandwich. But what will South Korea gain in that environment? They gain nothing. They'll gain literally nothing. And the same is true for just about everyone else, aside from maybe Poland and Hungary. Because they, they won't have Russia encroaching on their borders. But when those are what we're looking at, and yes, uh, again, I'm aware of the broader geopolitical consequence of this war, but how does that, on a micro level, impact the South Koreans? It, it really doesn't. It really doesn't. Even if Ukraine wins, even if Ukraine wins, what does South Korea get? They get... A, a shittier relationship with another one of their nuclear-armed neighbors. And they have three. They only have three, and they're already on bad terms with one of them. Their alliance with the United States puts them in the position of potentially ending up on terrible terms with the other one, China. And if they go all in on Ukraine, well, now they'll have all three. All three. They'll be on bad terms with all three. That's terrible. This war will do literally nothing for you for Ukraine. I mean, it, it'll do a lot for Ukraine. Just, well, I shouldn't say a lot for, more so a lot against Ukraine. The war is going to do a lot against Ukraine, but I was I didn't mean to bring up Ukraine. The war is going to do uh, jack shit for, <laughs> for South Korea. They have no business being in this war. They have no interest whatsoever in either side winning 
certainly if they are going to have interest, again, referring to the broader geopolitical consequence of this, they have more incentive to help the Russians win than the Ukrainians. Who wants the unipolar world where you can be sanctioned to death by some liberal in the United States or some so-called America first conservative who thinks that you're a little too close to the communist Chinese? Nobody wants to be canceled at, a, at the turn of a dime just because an American says so. That's no way that anybody wants to live their life. And that's why everyone's moving away from the dollar. Now that they have uh, alternatives. Now they have, can use their own banking uh, transaction systems to get away from the dollar. You have, again, we saw in that one cu currency episode that I talked about, uh, not the episode that I talked about, the episode on currencies that I did a few weeks ago. We see everyone's everyone's doing trade in local currencies. You see uh, the BRICS talking about a BRICS currency. You see local African countries talking about doing trade in their own local African currencies. You see ASEAN looking for to do trade. Well, not to do trade, but to get away from Visa and MasterCard. So that's huge. You have India and Indonesia doing trade in rupees. Nobody wants to use the dollar because no one wants to get canceled. No one wants to have their assets frozen because some bum in the United States got salty. Like, the Afghans are still waiting for their, what, $400 billion? $400 billion. We can give $100 billion to the Ukrainians, but we can't let the Afghanis have their own $400 billion? Okay. And then we froze and they are actively trying to steal the Russian currency reserves and assets that they had denominated in euros and dollars. No one wants that to happen to them. When people save money, they don't save money with the intention of having the money stolen by the bank. They don't save money with the intention of having it stolen by uh, the people running the bank. They save money with the intention of saving money so they can have the money when they need it. So if we're just going to sanction everybody and cut them off from the banking system that they save their money in, well, the second you have the option, you're going to get away from that system. And that's just common sense. But now, let's move on to the last topic for today's episode, which is uh, an update on why fighting war over Taiwan is still an objectively bad idea. And the reason I'm bringing this up again for the millionth time, and I have a feeling I'll be talking a lot more about this in the coming months, maybe a year or so, but the farther south the war in ukraine goes and we started at the north pole and now we're down past the equator the more the south, farther south the war goes the more i've noticed the narratives shift away from ukraine and russia and onto taiwan and china because china is the real enemy we need to be prepared to fight a war with china all this china 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 the chinese flew a balloon over america they're spying on us don't mind the actual spies who have infiltrated our government. Don't mind that our, one of our representatives are sleeping with an actual Chinese spy. Don't mind that the Chinese have this thing called satellites. <laughs> and don't mind that your own government and all the social media apps that you use are spying on you too, uh, uh, which go hand in hand because the government is in bed with a lot of those same social media agencies or so to actually, it should be the other way around. A lot of those social media companies are in bed with the government. But anyway, you have to be afraid of China, okay? That's, that's the important thing. You need to understand the threat, the danger that China poses to the United States somehow, some way. Uh, that, the, the further south the war in Ukraine goes, the more we start to get that nonsense and 
Oh my goodness, that's gonna be so unbearable. That's that's gonna be even more unbearable than the I stand with Ukraine phase of this war. It's uh, I don't want it, but I know that's what I'm gonna get. It's gonna be ill. And I'm, all the people I listen to for my news, aside from the Duran and Jimmy Dore, are gonna be all in on the Ukraine stuff, and it's uh, not the Ukraine, so the Taiwan stuff, and it's gonna be ah. Uh, now that is gonna be a struggle getting some real news out of that. Oh my goodness, I don't. <laughs> I really don't look forward to that one, but I'll still do my best. Okay, I'll still do my best. Somebody has to tell the common sense, and it may as well be me. But my goodness, that's gonna be a nightmare. But anyway, that's that's we're gonna get more and more of that as the war in Ukraine goes further and further south, especially once the Ukrainian lines break. But a few months ago, because it, it, it wasn't just recent news, it's a few months ago you had that leaked quotation marks memo from a U.S. Air Force general, uh, Michael Minahan, who predicted a war with China in tw- sometime in 2025. And we dissected that on the podcast in the episode titled uh, The Little Red Balloon That Could. Uh, the Biden administration has recently, uh, just a few days ago, I believe, sent anywhere from 200 to 400 military uh, trainers, quotation marks, to Taiwan. And I'm certain that there are more than that, and that they're already doing more than just instructing the Taiwanese. And as a side note, I'm using the heck out of these quotation marks today. Uh, Back to the news. And we have Trump regularly reminding us that Taiwan is on deck, and that there is going to be a war between China and Taiwan. And he's been one of the few voices in American politics warning of the danger that we're getting ourselves into with all these conflicts. Now, he hasn't gone the extra step in acknowledging the role that our alliances are playing in getting us specifically into these conflicts. So it's not just, it's not like China invades Taiwan and that automatically means war with the United States. It's not like Russia invades Ukraine and that automatically means war with the United States or a proxy war with the United States for that matter. No, these are decisions. These are choices that we've made. And the choice being that we're going to have an alliance with this country that is in an actively hotly disputed contest with some other country. These are choices that we made. He hasn't gone that far, and I honestly don't expect him to. But yes, the alliances are the problem, for us anyway. With If the conflict happens without the alliance, it just means the United States won't be a part of the conflict. And that's all I care about. You can fight your war if you want. And if we're not there, perhaps people have to get good at diplomacy again. And uh, uh, but in the case of Taiwan, if we're not, if we weren't there, th- there wouldn't be a Taiwan. And if we were to leave tomorrow, perhaps the Taiwanese and the Chinese wouldn't even have the war. I mean, they'd still be in a, a state of war. I mean, the civil war never really ended. But you know, the the unofficial ceasefire would continue, and perhaps a peaceful integration of Taiwan into the mainland would be in accordance. But instead, we get this mess where we have. All this fear mongering about China and Taiwan. You have American politic, American politicians warning of the danger we're we're getting ourselves into. Well, oh, I know it's Trump warning us of the danger we're getting ourselves into. All the other politicians are trying to get us in. It's oh, look at the danger of China, not the danger of getting into a war with China, but the danger of China. China's doing this. Oh, China's doing that. China's sending fentanyl across the southern border. Maybe we should. I don't know. 
get a grip on our southern border so it can't get here? No, the Chinese flew a balloon over the United States. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe we should enforce our air zone, you know? Instead of obsessing over when the Chinese fly planes over Taiwan's air defense identification zone, maybe, just maybe, we should take our own sovereignty just a little bit more seriously. Like, that shouldn't have even been a story. We should have made a game out of that. It's like, oh, who can take the balloon down first? We would have had gun-toting patriots all across the state of Montana attempting to shoot that damn thing down. And they would have got it down. <laughs> and it would have cost the government literally nothing. Like, it shouldn't have even been a story. We didn't need to scramble the most expensive fighter jet in our arsenal, the F-22, and have it fire a missile at a balloon. It's like, goodness, folks, what are we doing with our lives? But, but back to the... You have all this fear-mongering about China. Constant, incessant fear-mongering. You have Pelosi visiting Taiwan, and immediately the, the Chinese put that island on a a de facto blockade. They they did a mock run, a dress rehearsal of what I believed that they would do, and they put that conceptualization that I had in my head, that little theory, that, that uh, speculation I had in my head, they put that into practice. They did a naval and air blockade of Taiwan while Nancy Pelosi was on the island. Nobody was allowed in or out of the island for a brief period of time. That's what they're going to do in the war. And we're not going to be able to break through that. We are endangering Taiwan with this. But uh, people just keep going on. Well, we're, we're going to stand with our allies. We're going to fight China. We're going to stand up to Chinese aggression. We're not going to... Taiwan is different from Ukraine, okay? Here's why Taiwan is not Ukraine, blah, 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 blah. That's what we're being told. And and we're being told to prepare for this inevitable war with China over a country, Taiwan, which is 110 miles away from China. 110 miles away from China. We're supposed to believe the Chinese can't take the island. We're supposed to believe the Chinese are just incapable, inept, an amphibious warfare that they can't take the island, even if they wanted to. They can only do it two times during the year because of the, the weather conditions and the, all, all this nonsense. But if we were to believe any of that nonsense, it would remove all reason for the United States to be there. If China is incapable and inept militarily, too inept to take the island, well, what do they need us there for? The, their, their argument defeats itself. And if China is that inept, then why would we consider them to be a peer power? Why, why would we be afraid of them if they are incapable of even threatening Taiwan in this way? And that's the, the cognitive dissonance kicks in right then. But Taiwan's 110 miles away from China. Anybody with some common sense knows that China can take this island if they wanted to. That, that, to say that they couldn't would be to suggest that the United States could not conquer Cuba in a weekend Cuba being 90 miles off the coast of Florida. No idiot is going to tell that to you. But for some reason, when it's China and Taiwan, all of a sudden, uh, these people become experts on amphibious warfare, and we just pretend that planes and helicopters don't exist. They do, by the way. And China can take Taiwan. There's only so much the Taiwanese are going to be able to do to stop that from happening. The, the Chinese uh, are studying amphibious warfare. Now, studying and executing are two different things. But they're studying. It, Taiwan is not that far from China. Every plane in China, every ship from China can get there. And then you look at the other side of this equation. 
where Taiwan is 2,750 miles from Guam, let alone the continental United States, because then you're talking about a distance of 6,432 miles. So right off the bat, if we were to get into this war, and that's my the topic of this uh, uh, segment here, which is why the war is a terrible and really shitty idea for us to be even entertaining. But let's let's say we get into this war because that's all these people want. They want it so desperately. They they want to fight the right war. The, Ukraine that wasn't the right war that the United States needs to be fighting because the United States has interests all around the world. We we need to be preparing for conflict with China. Now let's pretend that these people are right, and let's pretend that uh, that well actually no I'm not going to pretend that these people are right, but we will play forward the ideas that they're putting forward which is that we're, we're going to fight this war over Taiwan. Let's fast forward and say it's 2024 or 2025 or 2023. Hmm. Let's, let's fast forward to the war. We end up at war. Taiwan is 110 miles away from China. Guam is almost 3,000 miles. The continental United States is over 6,000 miles. So right off the bat, the distances involved are so great as to call into question the necessity of our involvement in these faraway regions of the globe to begin with. But the distances also work against us, not just in a, a philosophical way in that we will immediately be questioning when we look at a map why we're going so far out of our way to be over there and how exactly China poses a threat to us when they're way the fuck over there. But... The distances work against us. Sure, Taiwan is an island, and our primary strength is naval and air power. But when said island in question is within breathing distance of the country it's being invaded by, that makes it incredibly dangerous for our Navy to get anywhere close to this island. Taiwan being an island only benefits themselves. Uh, well, it benefits them in any engagement between land troops like the taiwanese army and the chinese army taiwan being an island is going to be an unmitigated benefit to the taiwanese not one that the chinese cannot overcome with superior firepower and a superior quantity of firepower if the if the taiwanese ever amass their forces on the beaches they'll just get blown out by a chinese missile or five or 15. but the fact that they're an island disproportionately benefits the taiwanese because, again, they're the defenders here. But the fact that Taiwan is an island can also be used against them and against us, as Taiwan being an island makes it easier for the Chinese Navy and Air Force to blockade Taiwan in the same manner that they did when Nancy Pelosi went to Taiwan. Again, they're only 100 miles away from China, meaning that every plane in the country and every boat in the country can reach that island. Everybody can reach that island if they want to, if they are dedicated enough. Certainly the Chinese military can. And on top of that, every missile system in China has a range that easily encompasses Taiwan. Be it the air defense missiles, their anti-ship missiles, their air-to-ground missiles, or their ground-launched ballistic missiles, or even their hypersonic missiles, a weapon we don't have and therefore have no defense against. The long story short is there's no getting in or out of Taiwan without China's say-so. When the war kicks off, China will have complete and total control over the waters and the air around Taiwan. 
And in order for us to get there, we have to get through the Chinese first. So Taiwan being an island only been only helps the Taiwanese defend themselves from China. It does not help us defend Taiwan from China. It hurts us because we're farther away from Taiwan Island than the Chinese are. So them being an island is not an advantage for us. So that's one thing we have to get through our, our heads in this. Uh, you have people talking about the need for Taiwan's chips, though they're, they're microprocessors, they're semiconductors. We we need access to Taiwan's chips. Taiwan makes 90% of the world's chips, the, the advanced chips. Uh, we, can't, we can't let China control the chips. Uh, and all this fear-mongering about a, uh, an important resource, but let's not overhype the chips, right? Like, uh, don't get me wrong. They are a very, very, very important material. A very important industrial input, That a very important finishing input that you need for computers and microphones and computer and uh, monitors and computer screens and TV screens and Xboxes. And I'm just running through the list of all the technology I see in my room, my phone, my Xbox controller, my remote. Sure. My, my iPad. Yes, I need microchips and semiconductors for all those things to even exist. Yes, it's very it's a very important resource. But it's a man-made resource. This is not a natural resource. Chips are not only found on Taiwan because chips can be manufactured. And we manufacture them already, just not in large quantities. We can manufacture these chips with enough time and effort. If we put half as much effort and money into producing our own damn semiconductors as we do prospecting and war gaming and for a defense of Taiwan and the money we spend on all these carrier battle groups that we send through the South China Sea. If we spend half as much time and effort on building up domestic production, Taiwan's chips would become a redundancy. We would actually benefit from a business point of view from the fall of Taiwan. We could do it if we put in the effort, but no one wants to put in the effort. They want to go fight China instead. That's the first thing. The second thing is that fighting a war to avoid losing access to Taiwan's chips is not worth losing access to the literal millions of tons of more basic and essential commodities we import from China. I mean, that's like that's like fighting a war with McDonald's, right? You're going to fight a war with McDonald's to have access to half a slice of cheese, half a slice. And losing access in the process, you're going to lose access to the drink, the fries, and the rest of the burger that the cheese was on. It would make no sense. Sure, we have micro microprocessors and semiconductors, and you can find them in every TV screen, every computer, phone, microphone, calculator, and car that we have. But... Just like you can find semiconductors in TV screens, computers, phones, and calculators and cars, we have to import the TV screens, the computers, the phones, the microphones, the calculators, and the cars from China. Forget the chip, the finished good we get from China. You're, you're going to fight a war with the people who give you the finished good over a component in the finished good? That doesn't make any sense. And that's just looking at technology. 
where you're going to find the microprocessors, where you're going to find the semiconductors. Because once you go outside the range of technology, the chip argument becomes an irrelevancy. Why? Well, I'll tell you. Because we don't just import lots of technological goods. We import our pencils, our pens, our paper, our printing machines, our microwaves, our clothes, our shoes, our toilet paper, our plastic bins, our trash cans, our plastic bags, our paper bags, our silverware, our cups, our bowls, our pots, our pans, our plates, our light bulbs, our soap, our shampoo, our deodorant, our brushes, our combs, our toenail clippers. We, we get it all from China. And it would be retarded to sacrifice all of that for chips on Taiwan. It'd be retarded to sacrifice all of that to give the Taiwanese job security. And then remember that Taiwan is an island just 110 miles away from China. Remember that China has the largest navy in the world. Remember that their navy isn't spread out around the world, but is instead concentrated in the waters around China. Remember that every boat and plane in China is capable of reaching Taiwan. This island is going to be put under a naval and air blockade. To break that blockade and escort the chips away, away from the war zone, away from the possibility of getting shot at and blown up by a missile, to do that would mean putting American naval vessels well within the range of every ballistic, guided, laser-guided, cruise, anti-ship, and hypersonic missile in China. On top of putting them within range of the Chinese Air Force, who themselves can rain bombs and missiles on our Navy. And any ground forces that we managed to put onto Taiwan Island. Uh, it, it's just insane to think that this is a good idea. Because when you factor in all of that, it means that even if we joined the war, Taiwan's microchips still wouldn't be able to reach us until A, the Chinese Navy and Air Force were sent to the bottom of the sea, which would take at least a year or two if we're really wanking the might of the U.S. Navy here. More likely it's going to take a lot longer than that. Or B, until the war is over. Which is a factoid, either one of those, which is a, it's a factoid that renders this entire argument surrounding U.S. access to Taiwanese semiconductors irrelevant. You're going to fight a war over semiconductors, but you can't get the semiconductors until the war is over? What sense does that make? It doesn't make any sense. A chip shortage is built into this war, and us fighting the war isn't going to change that. Because you're not going to escort chips away from the island. Not while the Chinese Navy and Air Force are still roaming the skies and the seas around Taiwan. And if it takes you until the end of the war to get a chip shipment out of the island, you would have been better off staying out. Because at least then the war would have ended faster. It makes no sense to fight a war over these chips if you're not going to get the chips until the war is over anyway. That's stupid. That would be incredibly, incredibly stupid. And all we'd be doing in this war is needlessly endangering our soldiers in a war that they can't win, needlessly endangering the Taiwanese by provoking, a, by provoking the war in the first place, needlessly endangering the lives of the civilians living in all the surrounding countries, the Koreas, Japan, China, Vietnam, and the Philippines, etc., our own people included. We, 
we'd need endlessly, we'd needlessly endanger them by causing this war. And we'd needlessly endanger the trade that flows through this region, disrupting the global economy even further than what we've seen with the Russo-Ukrainian war, and needlessly endangering the entire planet with the prospect of a nuclear war, as China and the United States are both nuclear powers. This war is as unnecessary as they come. We should not be fighting it. We'd gain nothing even if China found a way to lose, and it is theirs to lose. Our credibility would take a bigger hit from fighting and losing this war. And fighting this war will obviously be an act of economic suicide. No matter how you cut it. It's an act of economic suicide. National suicide if the war goes nuclear because then everyone dies. Again, no matter how you cut it, no matter what angle you look at it, no matter what perspective you approach it from, this is not a war that needs to happen, nor one that the United States needs to fight. Now let us hope that common sense wins the day, and let us pray that cooler heads will prevail. But that, my lovely listeners, is all I've got for you today. Now, I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. The world is changing. We have some rough waves ahead of us, but we will sail those waves and watch those changes together. Now, I've been your host, Kaishan Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus.